This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we catch up with artist and designer Theasta Gates, we swivel with Sabine Marcellus, and learn of another design favourite with Chatpong Chuen Rudamol. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. Theasta Gates is a Chicago-born and based artist and designer whose practice questions issues of social and economic inequality. His work, which includes multimedia projects, installations, sculpture and performance art, draws on his training in urban planning, ceramics and preservation. It's a practice that leaves Gates well-positioned to serve as professor at the University of Chicago, run the manufacturing program Dorchester Industries and a design lab with the Prada Group, and pick up commissions like this year's Serpentine Pavilion. To learn more about this work and more, I caught up with Theaster in London. He began by describing how early experiences in church and on the farm proved fertile grounds for his interest in shaping the built environment. My history with gospel music and choir directing at New Cedar Grove Missionary Baptist Church. Like that was, you know, in that sense, cult- church culture was not just about religious order, it was also about, you know, fashion, style, taste. It was about musical ability and in, in practicing. It was about the performativity and what happens when you perform and, and you start out performing and you're just having fun and it's, it's not sacred. And then those moments when you continue to open yourself up and you find yourself in an ecstatic moment. So I would say one of my origin stories is definitely one about church. Another origin story might be about Mississippi, spending summers there and working on my uncle's farm and and my family's land and being too young to be really useful, but being out in the sun nonetheless and and kind of not knowing how much privilege I had in being in a family that was proud to be farmers and proud to own the land where they could produce and yield unimaginable things, you know, yeah, corn, yes, soybean, yeah, they raised cattle and and sheep and other livestock, but they were also able to produce dignity and familyhood, and they taught me to work really hard. That's another origin story. Then the third would have something to do with ceramics, you know, getting to undergrad, being in the planning department on one floor, and then going to the basement every day and making sculpture and being horrible at it, but starting to have these two, in a way, academic interests that grew. One that happened that was about cities and the other that happened that was about things. And over time, those things slowly merging together so that I started to imagine that cities could be reshaped by me. I mean, can can we talk a little bit more about that merging together, about, you know, cities and, and things coming together and, and even how your experience on the farm and, and your relationship with the church perhaps fed in as well? Yeah, well, it's, it, it's reasonable to say that from church I learned about invisible things, let's say. From the farm I learned to labour and the power of, you know, how labour also takes things from being invisible to visible and that it, not only are they visible, they're nurturing and they become assets. So corn 
has to be planted. It, it yields, and then it could be shared with the communities, Clarksdale, Mississippi, in Greenwood, in uh, Indianola, all of the adjacent towns that like where my where my family lived. But also there was this like labor that required our faith to plant, and then time and sun and water to grow. And you know, all those things also feel quite spiritual. And then I think ceramics in the city is like, you know, what happens when you realize that public policy is constantly being informed by how we live or by the people in power that determine the way cities are built. And the more that I learned about policy and power and the built environment, the more I felt I could hijack, I could uh, disrupt, I could add value to those systems and make them work on behalf of the people who I felt really deeply about, which were the people in and around my neighborhoods who happened to also be black and brown. So tell me about those early days of, of your practice. So you graduate, you've, you've had this realization. How do, how do you start to use the, the skill set that you have to, to change these communities and, and I guess help the people in these communities? I remember once I was having an outdoor event on a, on a parcel of land that was next to a building that I own. We erected some structures, kids were hanging out, we were having a good time and the police showed up and uh, they said, you know, sir, do you own this piece of land? And I said, I don't. And they said, well, you have to get off this land immediately. And I said, but it's right next to my house. And they said, if you don't own it, you can't do things on this land. And I was like, but the things we're doing are so much better than the vacant land that was here. We've cleaned it up, people are playing, we're creating good energy on the block. And the guy said, if someone hurts themselves, it's the fault of the city, this is not your land, but if this was your land, you could do whatever you want on your land. And it, it was a clear indicator to me that there was a relationship between state policing and private land ownership and a certain kind of freedom. And I thought, let me use land ownership as a way of being able to legally intervene and disrupt what happens in our cities, especially in neighborhoods that we've forgotten about. And so I feel like my practice grew in two ways. I was interested in strategies that would allow me to intervene and then the poetics of that intervention. So from there, I started buying buildings, not to become a developer, not to become a, a land baron, but to demonstrate how the disruptions that an artist creates could positively change a neighborhood and then give life, not only to that neighborhood, but to people who are looking for solutions for the problems of black space around the world. I mean, that makes perfect sense. So, so what, what, what changes did you start to see? Was it, was it slow or is it something that happened almost instantaneously? I always say that, you know, when I first started this work in the early 2000s, I didn't have any money. So I would just sweep. So sweeping and mowing and raking and cleaning were my tools. Those tools were highly effective at disrupting what people perceived as a good neighborhood or a bad neighborhood. Just by raking a vacant lot, you could transform it from 
kind of needle infested, garbage infested place where it looks like the city has forgotten about to what looks like a kind of urban oasis, a kind of green space in the middle of a, a small park. And so it was like with very little money, we were, we were able to demonstrate that things were happening. From there, we could then purchase a building and then do poetry slams in the building. This is, this is the early 2000s, so it was like, poetry was hot. You know, jazz and poetry together was like hot, you know? And we were having cookouts, we were having barbecues. We were inviting our neighbors who were also DJs, like old school R&B DJs in their now 60s and 70s. We were inviting them to spend their albums in our space called The Listening House. And then we were taking informal archives. We built the archive house. Then we were showing films and we were showing them in Black Cinema House. And with each building, we named it. And then we tried to just create the best programming we could to demonstrate that South Shore, Grand Crossing, these neighborhoods, that they were important and relevant and they were able to generate culture in the most profound ways. I mean, moving on from that. Oh, actually, you know what? Let's let's stay in Chicago first before we go we go broader. Why? You, you talked there about your family. You, you've talked about you know wanting to 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 better these communities that you're already in. Why why weren't you pulled elsewhere? Why did you really want to focus on yeah South Shore and, and the South Side of Chicago? It's a great question. I I really didn't have wanderlust uh, for where I lived. I thought, okay, my, my art practice is growing. Uh, I'm having uh, opportunities in other parts of the world. It feels good to be there. But there was something about Chicago in this small world that I was building that it felt like I was safe at home. It felt like I could do more with less at home because the rents weren't as expensive as New York or LA or London. Chicago felt like the place that I wanted to bring my new friendships, my new resources. I wanted to bring those things back home and that if I could plant the way we did in Mississippi, if I could plant new things at home, the yield would be so much greater than anywhere else in the world. And so I keep, I keep planting at home. Theastigate's there. We'll hear more from him later on in the program. Now for another entry from our Design Favourites series. Running throughout October, this segment looks at the favourite works of design from some of this show's favourite designers. Let's take a listen. My name is Chat Pong Chuan Rudamol. I'm called Chat for short. I have a small practice in Bangkok, Thailand. I do a lot of research, which I call Bangkok Bastards. We look at kind of live street vernacular in Bangkok, whether they're food carts or shanty towns or local curtain love motels, and they kind of inspire the design that we do. The house that really inspired me and actually made me change the way I thought about architecture is Robert Venturi's mother's house. So it's a house he designed for his widowed mother uh, located in Chestnut Hill, Philadelphia. It is a unique little piece of architecture that pretty much when it was constructed in 1964, pretty much turned the whole modern architecture movement on its head because at that time, people were very much into modern buildings, glass and steel, concrete boxes where inside and outside flowed in and out. 
But suddenly came this quirky little mother's house that from the outside looks like a child's painting or child's drawing of a gabled house. Very simple. But once you go inside, it's this unique twist and turn of architecture that makes you turn right and then you encounter a stair and then the stair is basically carved into a a chimney. Unexpected, whimsical moves that integrates modern language as well as classical architecture. This house pretty much was a statement against modernism and was pretty much a proclamation that we should actually look at different languages and cultures of architecture, not only modernism. To me, it was such a revelation because when you're in architecture school, you're pretty much taught to design modern buildings and create modern spaces. We study classical architecture or buildings of historical significance, but you never really integrate them into design. So this is why this building to me has been kind of an inspiration, especially for me as an architect working in Bangkok, Thailand. I'm removed from kind of the design world being in this country in Asia and Sometimes modern architecture isn't the only solution. We have so many languages and styles of architecture in Asia, and not only in Thailand, that we actually think are very important. Venturi's mother's house opens up the door where he's saying that we can actually look at other languages and styles and history, historical architecture, different cultures to let us create an architecture that's more open-ended. When I was in school, in architecture school, I wouldn't get a lot of the projects where the professor said, this is a really good project that's beautiful and clean and simple inside and outside. The spaces look beautiful in photographs or in 3D renderings or in drawings. And there were rules and formulas and logic that allowed you to design kind of a critical piece of modern architecture. But then I had this other type of brain, a brain that, you know, appreciates pop culture (laughs) that felt like a lot of this stuff was a little bit too intellectual and detached from culture. I asked questions like, well, you know, where I'm from, we live in houses with steeply pitched roofs that are on stilts to escape floodwaters, which we're experiencing right now in Bangkok. How does this fit into this kind of clean box of modernism? And when I saw Venturi's house and how it played such a role in kind of asking questions about how rigid modernism is and how it didn't allow for other languages of architecture to kind of uh, uh, flourish, it really touched a nerve in me, thinking that there are other people, other designers, other uh, aficionados of, of design who appreciates other languages of architecture. And where do they fit in all of this? I think the importance of this piece of architecture, this piece of design, allows for many, many approaches. It's much more democratic. It's much more open-ended. It allows you to integrate things in your life, whether you're in Thailand or Hong Kong or in Kenya or in Egypt, elements that you see outside your front door and how it can become a part of high design. To me, that's very powerful and it's very global. It's very 2022 especially to a younger generation who are just embracing design and want to be empowered, even though they're not in Europe or America. They want to feel like elements of their own culture could have as much of a value as Corbusier or Frank Lloyd Wright or Mies van der Rohe.
Thanks to architect Chatpong Chuen Rudamol there, sharing with us why Robert Venturi's project, Mother's House, means so much to him. We'll have another design favourite next week. Now we return to our conversation with Theasta Gates. Having initially started our chat looking at Theasta's work in his native Chicago, we moved on to talk about his ever-expanding global footprint. Case in point is this year's Serpentine Pavilion in London. Called Black Chapel, the circular structure references kilns, Italian timpiados and traditional African buildings. I began by asking how Theasta's experiences in Chicago have fed into projects like the pavilion and his work conducted elsewhere. Well, if we were to think about um, Dorchester projects and Rebuild Foundation and the work that I'm doing in Chicago, um, I really believe that I've been in the process of making a series of black chapels all along. We didn't call them that, and the architecture was a bit less formal. Um, The renovation projects, they didn't have to make a lot of noise because we were building as a means to an end. We, We wanted to create affordable housing for artists. We wanted to create additional workspace. We wanted people to be in residence and demonstrate that the South Side was a great place to be. Like, but now I feel like there's this way in which Black Chapel formalizes the informal architectural work that I've been doing all along. It feels like I've brought a little bit of the South Side to Hyde Park and to Kensington Gardens. And the way we rock out late at night on Dorchester is the way we can rock out at Black Chapel. I mean, and you have physically brought some of it as well. Can you tell me about the symbolism of, of bringing this bell from the south side of Chicago onto the lawn here in, in Hyde Park? Sure. So, you know, I've been talking about this bell because I, I feel like in some ways, you know, if you look at the history of religious traditions, the bell is the thing that calls people to a sacred moment, right? And it also is the thing that kind of helps us understand time. It punctuates time. For better or worse, when people hear this bell, they imagine that something sacred is about to happen. And so I was able to salvage this bell from a church called St. Lawrence that was in the process of being demolished. I say, in a way, the bell was homeless. And I've been, over the last six or seven years, trying to find new homes for the bell. And so it's been like an itinerant caller of order uh, so that people could have potentially sacred moments wherever the bell is. I mean, we're talking about sacred moments there. How do you want people to feel when they're here at at the Serpentine, when they're walking through the chapel, when they're hearing that bell sound? Yeah. Well, I don't want to dictate people's feelings, but I tried to build a pavilion that when a person sat down in this space and looked up through the oculus at the sky, they would feel peace and restoration and the the space would kind of induce a quietness. And what I love about the chapel is that there's nothing about it that screams believe in something. What I think it does is the opposite. It, It does nothing so that you can deal with yourself so that you can go inward, so that you can be peaceful, and that, that, that it becomes an extension of Kensington Gardens, this whole place where when you walk it, the promenade and you process, that it's a way of like t- taking the edge off the day and having moments where you can just kind of be at peace. I mean, and, and then, so, so this is the very experience, a very 
you know, again, you don't want to dictate, but this is the experience people are having here. Are there any similarities with what you want people to feel when they're, you know, in Dorchester projects on the south side of Chicago, in these other projects that you've worked on? What, what, are, what are those sorts of feelings you want to bring out in people? I don't know. Is it a pride in their city or, or something else? Often when people talk with me about what Chicago is, the first thing they think about is the architecture. The second thing they ask me about is the violence. And I feel like there's this disconnect between the history of beautiful things that have existed in the city and this anxiety that when you come to the city, you have to be fearful of your life. I'm trying to create a disruptor to that a stigma. And the disruptor is in every place, every neighborhood, every part of the world, there are bad things that happen and there are challenges. And then there are zones of safety and peace where even when things bad are happening outside or even when your life is a little bit jacked up, that there are places that you can go to where you feel peace. And I hope Black Chapel is one of those places where people can feel peace. I mean, and, and you'll continue practicing in Chicago. Can I ask, I, I assume, I don't want to put those words in your mouth, but what are your, what are your next steps? Or what's your, your ambition to keep developing this work? Working on Black Chapel has definitely given me an appetite for making bigger vessels, rethinking the way that, you know, the 40 buildings that we manage in Chicago, thinking about ways that we can turn those buildings up and amplify their, their uses and invite more people to use, use the buildings and take advantage of them. But it, it also wants me, it, it helps me think that maybe I built Black Chapel because I, I too need to rest and I need to kind of take a moment to consider my interior and be at peace. And I think, you know, in the art world, things can be so frenetic and the pace so constant that having a place like Black Chapel in my life, it, it feels like I'm building a place for my own rest. And I'm really grateful for that. I mean, can I can I ask as well? Once you've once you've rested and had some time to recoup, I mean, I mean your your artistic practice as well. How does that work in parallel with, I guess, these community building projects? I don't separate them. I don't separate the fact that there are things that are happening in the studio that are interesting, and and then right outside the studio that are interesting. Uh, I I can honestly say that I'm never preoccupied with how will a public use the space, I feel like it's baked into the work. So when I'm, when I'm in the studio and people say, what are you doing? And I'm firing my Anagama kiln. Uh, it's a wood kiln that's ba based on a Japanese style. And they ask if they could help or if they could have some firewood or if they could have some barbecue. That in a way, the creation of these beautiful vessels is happening alongside the world wanting and needing to share and do things. And I just, I'm just glad that the projects, they, they both need artistic inspiration and they need others. Is there anything that you wish you could do that you, you can't at the moment? There are always moments in the day where I wish that particular moment could last 20 days or a year. Like, I was just in the south of France and, you know, looking over this vista, and I thought, you know, man, I'd love to spend a year right here, but I have two days. And I, and I think what I want more than anything is more time 
to be reflective and more time to make. Theaster's Pavilion, Black Chapel, is at the Serpentine Gallery in London until the 16th of October. Rotterdam-based designer Sabine Marcellus has transformed a new public space in the centre of London. Commissioned as part of the London Design Festival, the semi-permanent project is called Swivel and is located in St Giles Square near Tottenham Court Road. A series of ten seats made from travertine, quartzite and marble, each of the perches can be gently rotated, allowing those sitting on them to engage in conversation by turning to face each other or find a solitary moment by turning away. To learn more about the project, I caught up with Sabine on site. I designed and Solid Nature kindly created ten swivel chairs made out of natural stone in the St Giles Square, which is a square that's sort of sandwiched in between Tottenham Court Road Station, the Centrepoint building, the iconic Denmark Street, and you have these three entrances all sort of funneling into this square. There's a lot of people walking through here, but it's very, like, not a lot happening. It's quite grey and... So the whole point of this installation is to inject some colour, but also a bit of fun. They swivel, so there's movement. It encourages a bit of interaction between people. But yeah, most of all, just kind of make it a bit more dynamic than what it normally is. In terms of dynamic, is it just having a piece of furniture that people can actually interact with beyond just sitting on it? Like they can twist it, they can turn it. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? The movement element of these seats, it's fun to see people interacting with them because they come up and become a bit curious. They see how it swivels, maybe sit on it. Also the way that they're designed, you can also just sit on the arm rest of it. There was a guy here yesterday that had like a full mobile office set up and he was using the armrests to have his laptop on and then you had this group of teenagers that were all sort of hanging on top of each other on three different ones, little kids trying to spin it. It's a bit of fun and, and it also a moment to sort of rest in this square which is much more designed as a thoroughfare. So yeah, trying to sort of land people here also for a moment. Yeah, to, I guess, stop people just passing through. It's actually to encourage people to dwell and sit and pause for a moment. Tell me a little bit about the actual physical form that you chose. Like, it is quite blocky, it is quite chunky. Is that in response to the materials that you're working with? Or, you know, is there also an element of, like, it's going to be in a public space, it needs to be quite strong and sturdy? A combination of both. In general, the design language of my studio is very sort of stripped back to elementary shapes. I love a good cube. <laughs> I think it's also very strong when you see the shape when it's all lined up because it's split into two sections. And when it's lined up, it looks like a cube, but sort of another cube has been taken out of it to provide the seating bit. But then when it turns, you break that perfect shape which I think brings quite some strength to the overall form. For sure, the materiality also informed the shape because it's made out of slabs of natural stone, which are flat. So then to do anything curved is kind of crazy and wasteful, I feel, because then you have to see and see away a lot. So this is optimizing the material use. It's a precious material. I think as designers, we need to be very aware of how we use materials and also that it's sturdy for people to use it over and over again. Because I want it to be safe, I want it to last outside. You have a lot more elements to consider when you have something placed outside. Over winter, there's going to be 
rain people that are not as respectful as you would be yourself to these objects. Just the fact that it's moving, you don't want any hands sort of getting caught in between. And also the fact that, you know, it's kind of a semi-permanent setup where they are now placed in the square, but they will be removed again and then brought back. So that action of moving it around, it's also very much designed to make that an easy action with a pallet truck. So for sure, all these things are considered into the design. And then I guess just finally and more broadly, how has your experience designing this project, how do you see that feeding into your practice more broadly? I'm very focused on taking my work outside at the moment. I think it's super rewarding to see people interacting with your work because a lot of times, you know, my work is sold through the gallery market and it lands in someone's home where I don't really see how people enjoy it. And here you get a direct feedback which is super nice. I don't live in London, and after the install, I went back home again, but I already saw on social media a lot of people posting, and that alone is really nice, how people sort of interact with them in different ways. I think it's the same with... I worked with IKEA this year, and it's kind of the first time that my work is available to a much wider audience like that, and just also the same thing, like people posting images on social media, how they put it in their homes and all these different ways, I think that's super nice. It's like personal interpretation of something that I have an idea of, but then, you know, people work with it themselves in a different way. Sabine Marcellus there, and that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. She also edited the show with assistance from Steph Chungu and Christy O'Grady. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.